How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to Michael Leasley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, sitting here with my padre, Dr. Michael J. Easley. So if you're going to call me padre, I'm going to start calling you Thugater. I'm with my Thugater. No, thanks. Greek for daughter. Pass. <laughs> okay, Thugater. Tyler and I often will like start quoting you in your Greek and Hebrew. I'm so sorry. Like ish, ish, ah. Like we, we've just there's so many things you've said. I've said Hebrew, Greek okay. and Hebrew. There's so many things I've heard you say my whole life. But even Tyler, only having been your son-in-law for seven years, he's he's got some memorized already. So, well, you know, I'm gonna start teaching your grandson. My, my grandson's the Greek and Hebrew alphabet in the proper time. I, I I've got it all to. planned out. I want you, know? you to. Yeah. Isaac will learn it. He's a sponge man. <laughs> That kid is crazy. Pax, there's no doubt with him. All right, we are doing an Ask Dr. E today. Are, are we? You, okay. Are you ready to be asked? Uh, that's Dr. sure. E? Fire away. Okay, our first question this is a softball for you. She basically is asking about versions of the Bible. She says, Dear Michael, since I heard you teach on Moody Radio, I've been studying mostly from the NASB. I preferred it to all other versions before I heard you, but when I heard your reasonings for preferring it to others, I was even more convinced it was the best. So Just we'll stop right there. So, <laughs> we'll have to, we, so put a pin in that. Well, you can explain your reasons why. And she says, even when the ESV seemed to be the quote unquote chosen one by I won't name him, but oh no, oh. I love Dr. Lutzer. Right. I love Dr. Well, Lutzer. I know you too. love Lutzer, but he's a friend. I know. So she's still stuck with the NASB. The past few weeks, she's been studying Romans 7 through 8, and she likes how the ESV is written for these sure. verses. Do you still think NASB is the closest to the original text? She says, you're, she has some. Um, you know, positive things she says at the end, but she says, you are a good teacher. You're not going to read all that? No, I'm not. But I'm going <laughs> to let everyone know that she said you're a good teacher. Well, number one, great question, Judy. Let's talk about dynamic translations, literal translations, yeah. just a little bit formal yeah. equivalency. So the New American Standard and the King James are what sometimes are called formal equivalency. Then there are categories called dynamic equivalency. Mm -hmm. So there's no such thing, Judy or anybody, as a word-for-word -word translation. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Now, you'd think you could take a book and say, let's translate each word. But there's syntax, there's idioms. Would it make any sense? Right. You, yeah. can't, you can't do it. So understand the, the, the background of a language and how we bring it into English. And let me also add, English is one of the most complicated languages to begin with. When you grow up, you don't know any different. Right. But the illustration I use is go, went, gone. Go and gone makes sense. Why don't we say go, goad, gone? Right. So went is what I call a suppletion. It's a word that's added, and it makes no sense in a declension of the verb to go, but we all know to say went when we're talking past tense. Now, that's a silly illustration to make a bigger point. Translations are complex. The New King James and the New American Standard versions, in my view, I'm not you know, the definitive final answer, are the best at the attempt 
to have a formal, literal translation or a rendering of those passages. The ESV, and I have dear friends who are involved with the ESV, Wayne Grudem and I have had this discussion on more than one occasion. The ESV was a complete revamp of the RSV. The ESV is a very good rendering. The reason I don't prefer it, and I did preach out of it for almost two years, and I used it from time to time, and I liked reading it, they make some what I call interpretive glosses. They're not horrible. I just think they're a little less accurate than some of the NASB renderings. In the front of your New America Standard Bible, and I would encourage you, no matter what Bible you use, to read those pages everybody turns by. Oh, man, no kidding. They're so helpful to understand. So much information. Yeah, yeah. the preface of uh, the translation. In the, the Lockman Foundation, it's not even two pages in the front of the Bible that explains things. And when they did the update... In 95, they took the the, thou, hast, dust words. They, they changed those. They didn't change the literal nature of it, but they made it a little more readable. Yep. That illustrates the audience of readership over against a translation. King James is actually a very good translation. It's built on the majority text, an oversimplification. Let's say we have, in the Old Testament, we have what's known as the Masoretic text, and that is Essentially, let's just say one copy. Now, not literally, but it's a very agreeable copy. The New Testament is completely different. There are fragments, there are scrolls, there are portions of the New Testament from different times, different places. And so let's use Dr. Horner's illustration. We have 120% of the information. Okay. So the goal of the New Testament translation is to say what was more than likely the actual you know, what was what was said at the yeah, time. Yeah. Now, a silly example, the phrase, the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. Another one says the kingdom of God. Another one says the kingdom of God in Christ. And let's just use that four or five different manuscripts. Which one's right? Well, none of them are theologically in error. So the majority text, and again, this is an oversimplification, would say, what did the majority of manuscripts say when they rendered that translation. Yeah. So if we had a hundred of them that said the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus, we'd say, okay, let's go with that one. Yeah. The other view is, let's just call it the harder, shorter reading. So if there's a phrase that doesn't make a lot of sense in Greek, the idea is the translator would be more inclined to add a word to clarify it. You've done the thing in school. Did you ever do it where they write a sentence and you pass that around the class? And every person rewrites the sentence. Okay. And by the end, 25 kids later, it's a completely different sentence. Interesting. <laughs> Just because there's that. Or there's that one kid that it, changes the whole well, thing. Well, or, or it's an error <laughs> yeah. or a mistake yeah. or they added a word. Yeah. Um, it's not malicious. So that's a good illustration in the New Testament and the copyist errors sure. that happen. So all that said, when we're working with translations, we have a, a large corpus of Greek New Testament documents and fragments. The Old Testament is a little bit different with the Masoretic text that was so well preserved by the scriptorums. If you go to Israel, we'll take you to the Essene community, which is south near the Dead Sea. Mm -hmm. And you've been there. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we show you this was probably a place where they copied the Bible. Yeah. And if they made a mistake, they put it in a crock and they buried the crock in the desert because yep. you can't destroy the Word of God. And 1947, when that boy threw the rock and heard a clunk, Found that was the these, discovery yeah. of the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls. So that gives you an illustration of how these things. Now, formal equivalency, King James, ESV, 
uh, New American Standard, dynamic equivalencies like your mom now is reading the New Living Translation. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I love yeah. it too, though. I mean, I read it in conjunction. I, I like to like look at the NASB, look at the NLT, throw in the ESV. Bingo. Sometimes I open up the message, Dad. Talk about the message for just a second. You get ten seconds. You get ten seconds. It's not a translation. It's not a Bible. Next point. It's a paraphrase. That's right. It's not even a paraphrase. Yeah, I mean, it's someone like read the Bible. (laughs) Someone being Eugene Peterson. Yeah, I'll stop right there. Um, But (laughs) yeah. So anyway, as we were saying, um, so so here's the thing, and Hannah, you're exactly right. For anybody who's going to study the Bible. Use more than one translation. Yeah. Totally. And with software, as you know, I'm a big proponent of Logos. In fact, a shameless promotion where I get no kickback or anything, Faith Life has a lot of these resources free online for your small group, for your church, and you can do parallel translations side by side if you want on your tablet. I have like four to six up on my screen at once. So so the, the short answer is, yes, I still prefer the NASB. Because I do think it is more faithful to a grammatical, literal rendering. I don't think the ESV is terrible. I don't think King James is terrible. I think they all have strengths and weaknesses. But the the last thing I'll say, well, two more things about NASB. Every time they translate, in my view, the most important Old Testament word, loving kindness, chesed, they always use the same word, loving kindness. ESV, and I haven't checked this in a while, always uses steadfast love. Okay. NIV and others change it. It makes it Mercy, up. <laughs> love, yeah. yeah, kindness. Yeah. And those are fine synonyms. But being such an important word, I want to know when I read the word loving kindness yeah. and or steadfast love. The other thing is the divine pronoun. And yep. this has become a huge... I think uh, it's the only translation that has the divine yep. pronoun now. And that's why I'll, yep. I will never... Like I mean, I use the NASB every day when I'm looking at other translations because and, and, it's the only one. It's and crazy. I, I've written some of these people in high places, and the answers I get are so discouraging. Uh, the the best one I heard was it clutters up the text. I went since when has it cluttered the Bible? Yeah, to me it clarifies. If I'm reading <laughs> Proverbs or Psalms, and sometimes the narrative literature, yeah. it's pretty easy to know the antecedent who he's yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah. But if you're in wisdom literature, Proverbs or Psalms, good luck. Yeah. If that's divine pronoun, what we mean by that was when he, him, you, your is not a capital H I M H E capital Y O Y U R. I don't know who the referent is. Is it a person? Right. Or is it God? Right. And in wisdom literature, good luck. Sometimes, and even even though I can read Greek and Hebrew, I work at them. I'm not a scholar, but I, I can use them. I wouldn't know sometimes, wow. apart from looking at the NASB to see how did they render it. Wow. That I can go back to my Hebrew and Greek. Okay, go, okay I, see, I see how. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's very evident, but I think it's a, a a huge loss to the Christian community that wants to study the Bible. I want to know when God's speaking or when the right. referent is God. Right. And um, so anyway, th- I'll stop there. But those are the big concerns I have, and that's why I love the NASB. Um, I would also say, consumption-wise, the reason many pastors, and I have friends that have adopted ESV or NIV, is because that's what their congregation uses. Yeah. And I understand that fight. And it's an easier read. I, I mean, that's why yeah. people use yes. it. Well, that was the other thing I was going to say. In NASB, uh, ESV, King James are a 12th grade equivalency for readers, interesting. NIV seventh, seventh. grade, huh. 
and probably down further some, with some of the other versions. NLT is probably, about. yeah. yeah the other Bible that, I didn't yeah. mention is the, the Net Bible, N E T. I love the Net Bible. The Net Bible, Bible is yep. a great resource, also online free at Bible.org. And you can put up the Net Bible. You could put your NASB, your ESV, your King James, whatever you want. You're not going to waste time comparing versions. And I, I congratulate you, Judy, for asking the question. And that shows that you're serious about uh, studying the Word. So good for you. Yeah, super fun. All right, our next question is really about the Trinity. So a woman wrote in asking about her husband and a trusted spiritual advisor had arrived at a different view of the Trinity than what she had been taught growing up. So she says, instead of seeing the Trinity as three separate persons who are one God, they believe they are three aspects of the one God. And she just doesn't really understand how they arrived at this conclusion. And she asked the spiritual advisor, I love this question. Okay, so who was Jesus praying to in the garden before being crucified? (laughs) And this guy replied, himself. And so she says, I can't wrap my head around this. Can you please explain? Uh, I can explain you needed a new spiritual advisor. No, I'm not kidding. I'm kidding. I just that was that was a cheap shot. Um, Low hanging fruit. First of all, let's let's say this: um, the idea of three aspects of one God is what we historically call modalism, and there is a wonderful YouTube caricature. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, We're going to link in the show notes, and I would encourage everybody to watch it. It's so entertaining. They're talking about, you know, how do you explain the Trinity? And it's done so well. But the idea of an egg. Yeah. Three parts. The the yolk, the white, the shell. uh, Water, ice, Uh vapor, Vapor. liquid. That's called modalism, and that's that's false. It's It was, you know, it's false doctrine. I was definitely taught the egg in Sunday school growing up, for sure. Yeah. So the idea of, of three persons and one God is about the best language we can use. Let me make a couple observations. And you've many of you have heard me uh, sharpen this axe before because I go to this often in First Corinthians chapter twelve. Twelve. Four. See, even even my <laughs> Thugater knows oh, uh, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Where am I going? Here we are. So. This is an interesting section about spiritual gifts. And remember, Paul in Corinth is uh, correcting the churches in Corinth. But in chapter 12, he talks about concerning spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be unaware. And then he explains some things. But then he says in verse 4, listen carefully. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord and there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects. When it comes to gifts, he says the same spirit. Ministries, and let's just say ministries are the outworking of, okay? Variety of ministries, the same Lord. The effects or the results, the same God. So not only do we have three different, let's say, quote-unquote, functions, or ministries of, we have 
the identity of the Spirit, the Lord, and God. And I don't think that's happenstance. I think he's explaining the Trinitarian doctrine here, which, by the way, in our recent interview with um, Dr. Buer from DTS, we talked about the Trinitarian emphasis in the book of Ephesians, how important it is. So first of all, it's not modalism, not the egg or water, ice, and steam. It is three unique persons. So the garden question really is, it's a pretty simple answer. Let's just look at what Jesus says in the garden. And we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to read when he has uh, asked his disciples to, to pray with him. And he, he goes a stone's throw away. And we pick up in Matthew 26. In chapter 26, 36 is the whole garden narrative. But he, verse 39, well, let me read 38. He said to them, the disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then, of course, we had, you know, they're sleeping, and he goes back and wakes them up. Verse 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So both of the account, uh, both, both times he talks to the Father, not himself or not the Holy Spirit. But we do have the Holy Spirit ministering to him. And then if we want to go back in time just a bit to the baptism of Jesus, which is another fascinating passage that talks about the, the identification of the Trinitarian Godhead, uh, this is John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan uh, to John to be baptized by him. And jumping to verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you'd be well, you'd do well to look at Psalm chapter 2 as well. But we've got three things happening here. He's baptized, he comes up, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And I often remind people, you know, the Methodist church took that somewhat literally and you'll see their logo with mm-hmm. a dove, the landing. And uh, that's not right or wrong, that's just the way they, they looked at it. The text says he descended as a dove, meaning the way a dove would light to the ground. So I have this Steven Spielberg-esque view of a a human-shaped form of some kind that comes from heaven and uh, then lights on him. And then God speaking, this is my son. So you've got the Trinitarian Godhead there. So the... the Okay, time out. I mean, obviously Christ, fully man, fully deity... Did the Holy Spirit n- not indwell in him prior to his baptism? But he's already God, so it doesn't. He's not indwelling. He's just identifying. It's him. just a, okay. Okay. It's identification, okay. which is why, um, and and the passage, you know, many who believe in immersion, yeah, they'll appeal as he came up out of the water, meaning he wasn't, you know, wasn't yeah. poured on his head. 
be that as it may. Um, but the imagery is he comes up from being underwater and now down from heaven, uh-huh. the spirit descends. And the identification is this is my beloved son. So when I officiate or talk about baptisms in a local church, I say, the mode is important and it's illustrative, but what's happening is you're saying, I'm being identified as a follower of Christ. And the voice of God, the Father, says, this is my beloved son. So the Trinitarian doctrine is is illustrated there. And then, of course, John's baptism uh, starts to recede. His ministry and Jesus' uh, ministry starts to excel. So anyway, summary, uh, you know, not three aspects, not not modalism, but three persons. And again, even the word persons is a little bit encumbering in our it's hard for us. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in theology. But I do think Christ was praying to his father. The the real head scratcher for me is how does Jesus eternally exist and yet Galatians four four, at the proper time he's born of a virgin, born under the law, and he becomes an infant. Somehow he's in utero and the Holy Spirit is working and that stuff you'll never figure out till we go to heaven. Yeah. And even then we may not fully comprehend it. But the Godhead three, I would go so far as to say without a proper Trinitarian understanding, you can't understand salvation. Wow. Because it requires all three persons of the Godhead yes. to save a person. And that's yeah. why I love the First Corinthians chapter 12 passage, the same ministry, same effects, yeah. same results, uh, the Lord, the Spirit, and the Father. It's so interesting because you think about the men and women in the Old Testament, they certainly knew God the Father. You, know, you think about Abraham or King David or whatever. They they knew God the Father. They knew the Spirit because they saw the Holy Spirit yes. indwell people, leave people. All, they experienced all the above. They knew some hint of the Messiah and some— Well, they were clear. They, were, they knew a Messiah had to come. Some, yes. you know, didn't know what it would look like, whatever. And then, of course, our New Testament writers were, you know, fully clued in to the three persons. But it's, I think it's just interesting because it's like everyone just kind of, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like they really wrestled with it. Because I would assume then Paul would be like explaining this verbatim to his That's letters. Good point. Yeah. But then at some point, I guess, do you, I mean, obviously we know Trinity, Trinitarian is not in the Greek or Hebrew. There's no word. Was it a church? Fa- was it just the, the church fathers that kind of? Labeled it well, was sure, the modern day church yeah. struggling with this concept, and yeah, so they and, label it. And if you go back in theological history, there's a development here of what the role of the Trinity is and whether or not. I mean, there are wholesale denominations that don't believe in a Trinitarian Godhead. True, and so true. But but if you go back to Second Samuel chapter seven, where the messianic throne is promised at the throne of David for all eternity, you have the new covenant. I will pour yeah. my spirit into them. So there's plenty of scripture that articulates the role of the Holy Spirit, and there's plenty of scripture that articulates the longing and coming of a literal Messiah. So um, I, I do think I think it's you know whenever we talk about what is what does Judaism believe, that's sort of like saying what does American Christianity believe. There's so many different right. you know opinions yeah, within a denominational sure. you know, group. Let's say groups. So when you look at the Old Testament as a document, not looking at the way the rabbinics would parse it. Um, I think it's very consistent and clear that there was a Messiah who would come, the Holy Spirit was there, and the Father is overseeing. I mean, Genesis chapter uh, 225, let us make man in our image, two plural pronouns. Is he talking to himself? It's got to be a Trinitarian experience. Uh, The Spirit of the Lord is hovering over 
um, who created Colossians chapter 1, it's Jesus Christ on his hands and knees who's making the sand man, the dirt animals, yeah. that he breathes the breath of life into yeah. them. Yeah. So it, it's taught. It's just, um, and people are funny. I, I think I think the pious, devout Jew understood a Trinitarian doctrine far better than uh, we give them credit for. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Okay, well, going back to Genesis, because we've kind of been in and out of there on this question, um, Nancy wrote in, and she wants to hear your thoughts about the concept of an old earth versus a new earth. This is a question she has had for some time. She's traveled and seen the Grand Canyon and other places that are supposed to be millions or billions of years old. And yet, Scripture seems to teach the earth is more like thousands of years old. So she wants to hear your thought, and she said she wouldn't be mad if you threw in some discussion about dinosaur bones as well. <laughs> <laughs> she wouldn't be mad. Good to know. What is it about dinosaurs and boys? Your boys haven't got into dinosaurs yet, have they? Not. I mean, Isaac probably knows six or seven yeah. of their names, but they're not. They're not fanatics about it's it. It's interesting though. It seems to be a lot of boys get into dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about this. Uh, two categories: old Earth, young Earth. Um, there are a lot of old earth proponents, and I would venture to say more uh, Christian scholars are going to probably go to an old earth. Hugh Ross would be one that you could look at who's an old earth proponent. I am a young earth proponent. I am crazy. I think the world could be as, as young as 10, 12,000 years old. Um, it might even be younger than that. Let's talk about a couple things. The appearance of age. The Grand Canyon you illustrated you visited, or you know, people go to the Antarctic or the, the poles, and they go, there's no way this could have happened in six literal days. It's an it's a observation based on what we're looking at, the appearance of age. When the garden is made, uh, there's no indication that God planted seeds or seedlings and waited for those things to produce fruit for Adam and the woman to eat. So the garden is made mature. Um, if we look at all of Scripture, uh, the idea of a miracle itself is important because a miracle, we talk about supernatural, meaning above nature, supra, above, super. Um, so when Jesus, uh, let's pick a miracle, uh, water into wine. Yeah. If Christ could take water and convert it instantly into wine, he has broken the laws of chemistry. Yeah. We might say biology. He took something that wasn't water. It wasn't grape juice. It was water. Now, okay, grape juice is 90% water and sugar. Yeah, but it wasn't. That, that not, he started with water. Right. He didn't start with grapes. Right. And he instantly turns it into mature wine. Right, the best wine. So that had, we'd say aged, aged wine. Yeah. So he did something there. Okay, you don't like that miracle. He walked on water. <laughs> he broke the laws of physics. Okay, you don't like that miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, gave the blind sight. That's the big live. one. Uh, John 9, to me, is almost tantamount to resurrection because he creates a new set of eyes for a man that's congenitally blind. So Jesus Christ himself could, quote, break the laws of nature and the appearance of age, if that makes sense. So when you look at the Grand Canyon, you can say, sure, it took billions and billions and billions of years for water to erode that. Uh, I would say, contraire, it was created with the appearance. We, we put age on it. We say it looks old, and we measure the strata. And frankly, uh, most scientists who 
would appeal to carbon-14. We'll also acknowledge carbon-14 is a very flawed science of aging. Now, there's an older book, it may be at a publication, called The Waters Above by Joseph Dillow, and it's also known as The Canopy Theory. And uh, when I was uh, a young Christian, I was a theistic evolutionist. I believed God used uh, Darwin's theory of evolution to make man, and one day those apes became you yeah. know, uh, what we are today. And I believe that it was billions and billions of years. And that's called theistic evolution, that God used evolution to create man. The problem is he makes man in God's image. Mm. He didn't make him an ape and make him in God's image. He made him in God's it's image. and stupid he made, caveman. Right, and he made yeah. him at the same time. So uh, when we talk about young earth, I'm going to go to the text, not science's observation of what seems to be old, the appearance of age. So, for example, Genesis 1.1, and, and you almost have to see this like God knew we were going to be arguing about this one day. Because when he creates things, he, he listen to what he says. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning one day. He does this again and again and again through every creation evening, day. Evening, morning, one on day, the... One day, one day, one day, one uh, day. The word yom which is over 2,300 times, I think, in the Old Testament, always means day. Okay, my friend, who I love and respect, and we argued about this one New Year's Eve for like two hours. It's like, who does this happen to but people like me? Uh, He, at that time, I don't know if he would still hold to this, would argue Moses was just trying to simplistically explain to the people how that God created the heavens and the earth. So that's, it's not a literal one day. It's just Moses trying to simplify things. Respond. Then what do you do with <laughs> the book of Job? When the whole argument, yeah. God in the dock, if I would talk to you like a man and he puts him on trial, so to speak. And he says, where were you? when I made the sunrise. Where were you in the Leviathan, in the ocean, where were you? Uh, you know, he, he upbraids him at the end of it. Job says, I repent and retract in dust and ashes. I cover my mouth. You know what I've heard from the hearing of the ear. Now I see yeah. you. Um, if God is not a God of miracles, then we're in a bigger trouble with whether the earth is old or young. And you, you just can't, you can't over, here's the thing. I have this theory that the way we were trained early in life, and that can be college and master's and PhD level, affects our view of Christianity. If we came to Christ younger in life, we are more affable to what the Bible says. I have an acquaintance who was trained as a sociologist. They look at the Bible through a very different lens and, frankly, sometimes a very distorted lens. If a man or woman is trained in evolutionary science in billions of years and that's what you know, of course you're going to look at the Bible with questions and askance and go, of course that can't be true. Um, I believe the text is reliable. I believe God's Word is true. And we look at something and we can't explain it. Well, pick any of the miracles Jesus did. You can't explain them. Uh, I had a friend who just passed away, uh, a dear, dear friend in his 70s, very sudden heart attack. The last lunch we had on a Thursday afternoon was he didn't believe in any miracles. He said they all can be explained. He's a retired physician. They can all be explained. And I said, did Jesus perform any miracles? He goes, no. I go, what about resurrection from the dead? Well, that one you got me on. (laughs) I said, oh, wait a minute, doc, you're a bright guy. Let's go backwards. Which is easier to turn water into wine or resurrect somebody from the dead to that, which he laughed, but he still didn't believe in miracles. So 
and and I even said this to him in so many but words. But still calls himself a Christ follower. Eh. Okay, okay. But, but I'm like, I, I would say in so many words, his training presupposed mm. him to the Bible, meaning he was Darwinian. He was taught comparative anatomy, and that's how he was trained. Nothing right or wrong about that. That was his reality. And I'm this crazy hack preacher saying, no, I think that Jesus actually created the world in six literal days and rested. Yeah. And if you have a problem with that, you got a bigger problem when it comes to raising the dead, turning water into wine, giving a man a new set of eyes, healing the deaf, healing the lame, healing Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, go down the line, any miracle you want to talk about. And frankly, I think we do a disservice to the text, to the Word of God. But this is what he said he did. And I'm going to trust what he said he did more so than, quote, scientific observation based on repetitive actions to you know, prove something. Here, here's the real ringer, light. The speed of light is, what is it, 5,250 seconds? Well, anyway, someone will I mean, someone me. knows, and you kind of know. And so we look at a star, and we go, it's 4 billion yeah. light years away. Yeah. Now, I, I cannot comprehend this. That's I mean, the best question to attack me as a young earth person, how in the world could God make a light Hmm. that's 4 billion years away Mm -hmm. and we're just now seeing that light that's 4 billion years old. That's Mm -hmm. how far it is. And our little Hubble telescope has gone out there and find, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of galaxies allegedly. And so they send this light back to us and we see stars in the night go, okay, easily that's old. Well, this is Michael Easley's, dumb hack theology, Bible-believing guy. God can suspend the laws of physics yeah. with the time light travels as well as he can turn water into wine. Yeah, he or, can... or he's not God. Right. So that's the only answer. Otherwise, we'd have to convert everything back to man's hubris to say, no, I can measure the speed of light. I know it's billions of... Well, bully for you. Can you create light? He did. So somehow the laws of physics, which hold things together from our observable finite realm, are what God put in place to hold it together, right? Gravitational pull, the right. orbit of the earth, etc. And so all this to say, I, I think God is bigger than the way man looks at him. I don't have a problem that he did it in six days. If you want to believe that it took him billions and billions and billions of years, fine. That doesn't make me mad. Uh, I just think... I'm going to lean on the text, not merely on what uh, well-intended Christian scientists and observers say about the old earth. Okay, what about the dinosaurs? So, great question. (laughs) Uh, Ken Ham, uh, Creation Museum, which now has the big ark up there in uh, Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky. It's a a great place for you to go visit. Ken is an interesting cat. Um, I met Ken a few times. I love him. Um, He's got a, a, a... Interesting personality. He's, by the way, he's a young earth guy, so that's a reason we get along. His ministry is called Answers in Genesis, and it's called One One, which is very interesting. In the beginning was the word, where was God? I mean, he starts right there. So that's a pretty good, uh, pretty hard to improve on that. He basically says that when the animals were on the ark, there's no reason to believe they couldn't have been juniors, smaller. Yeah, yeah they're all babies. You, you wouldn't basically. put a full size Tyrannosaurus Rex no, on no. the ark. You'd put a yeah. baby on the ark. Yeah, it's efficient. It's put the, there is put the exactly there is also acknowledged evolution within species. Sure. If you have a dog yeah. and you get an AKC manual, yeah. read the first chapter. The first chapter of the American Kennel Association says there is originally 
one set of dogs. In the beginning, there was yes. a pair of dogs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's what they say. Yeah. Unless they've changed it in the last edition. And I mean, I was shocked to read this a few yeah. years ago. And all dogs come from those two dogs. Yeah. Proof. Let them go back and breed normally, and they all go back to mama, so to speak. Yeah. There's some like wolf looking animal. They, I mean, look at a poodle and don't tell me that's not a freak of nature. <laughs> look at a whippet and no, say it's chihuahua. not a freak of nature. Or a chihuahua. It's not a freak of nature. And you know what? These overbred dogs don't live very long. Yeah. These overbred dogs have lots of problems yeah. and health problems yeah. because it, they're, they, they're hybrid and they're overbred selective breeding to get them. Same with chickens, same with pigs, same with horses. Right. You know, a man is smart and he can make bigger horses and miniature horses. If you leave them alone in quote nature, they go back to mother, so to speak. So that's one thing to keep in mind, juniors. So it didn't take millions of species. It only took one set of horses, Yeah. one set of dogs. Right. Okay. Secondly, bones. Go back to this vapor canopy, the canopy theory. Um, the the Earth was formed when the Earth was formed. It was one land mass, and if you look at a map and you see how South America could scooch up and be part of America, and Europe could be squished together, so there's probably one elliptical or oval shaped land mass surrounded by water. When the flood occurs, it says the floodgates of the heavens and the Earth opened. Huh. Um, it's a terrible movie in every respect, the one they did with uh, Russell Crowe on Noah. Um, but the CGI of the floodgates of the earth was brilliant because they showed the earth crust blowing up and these blowholes of water shooting up with high volume. That's probably the best rendering I've ever seen. And then the canopy, the water above, like a giant uh, uh, it's not an aquarium, but a ter terrarium. Oh, if you look, a terrarium. So, so if you look at a terrarium, it's an ecosystem. It's enclosed, and the heat, the humidity uh, yeah. is on the top. It yeah. kind of okay. So that was the Earth with this huge canopy of water, which protected them from radiation and UV rays. Which is why, by the way, I believe people lived longer because you didn't have UV and radiation like you do today. And so when the canopy of water, the Earth, the Earth, the floodgates of the Earth and the heavens collapsed, that's the only way you could get a global flood. When the canopy collapsed, the polar ice caps are formed. And so another theory, and I think Ken Ham and his, his guys, Andrew Schelling, is their real genius. I think they believe that the dinosaurs were not on the ark because God knew that they would not survive post-flood. And so when the when the canopy collapsed, we have these areas called vociferous rubble drifts. Big word, meaning when the water uh, drained out so quickly and then froze, there's vegetation and animals that's still in the tundras. In Siberia in the 50s, uh, the famous one they found was a baby mammoth completely frozen in a block of ice. They bring it out. They take it to bird's eye. Because bird's eye was in the science of freeze-drying things. And you can see pictures of it on Wikipedia, I'm sure. But there's this small baby mammoth. The most interesting thing was when they cut it open, the vegetation in the animal's stomach was like barely decomposed by the acid of the animal's stomach. And the scientists said this happened almost instantly. And they further said, wow. we couldn't with today's technology freeze something as fast Wow. As this animal was frozen. So if you go back to Dillo's theory and the canopy theory and this collapse, 
Uh, and again, this gets way above my pay grade scientifically. But when that canopy collapsed, it formed the north and south polar caps. And so animals in those areas were killed immediately and in these ruffled drifts. And in, there are places around the world where you can find dinosaur bones in abundance. So one explanation is where we find the dinosaur remains, it would if they survived the flood in some form uh, on the ark, and there were a few remaining, they didn't last long, and they died out as a species. That's the short answer to the long question. Mm, so good. If you've got a question, email us, question at michaelincontext.com, or you can give us a call, 615-281-9694, and leave us a voicemail. We would love to hear from you. I love doing these shows. I think a lot of people love listening to them. So keep sending your questions, and we'll see you all next time. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.